Merry Christmas and blessings to each of you. While Sam and I are taking time off to be with family and friends this Christmas season, we are replaying one of our favorite episodes, which is a conversation with Father David Evernethy. If this show and all that the Catholic Gentleman is doing has been a blessing to you, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash Catholic Gentleman. Any dollar amount would be greatly appreciated, and we thank you for considering. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy. Today, we're really excited to be joined by Father David Abernethy. He was born in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and is a father of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri in Pittsburgh. Father David converted to Catholicism as an undergraduate at the University of Pittsburgh, where he received his bachelor's degree. He also holds master's degrees in sacred theology and divinity and has spent many years as a priest studying clinical counseling and psychoanalysis. He uh, received in 1987 uh, the Philokalia, and in that gift, it sparked a love and an interest of him of the Desert Fathers and Eastern spirituality that he has developed over 30 years. We're going to be able to talk about that with him today. He has particular interests in the saints John Cassian, John Climacus, and Isaac the Syrian. Father, welcome. Thank you, gentlemen. Good to see you. I wanted to start right in and talking about oratory. When somebody hears that you're an oratorian, what do they think? Do they think you're a great speaker? Or do they understand the House of Prayer and St. Philip Neri? I'd love to talk to you about that and just hear a little bit of the basis of uh, the oratory, your oratory, and how St. Philip Neri. Um, yeah, I think that. most people's association with oratory is the word orator. So they think in some ways we are great speakers or meant to be great speakers. And many people seem to come to know the oratory first through John Henry Cardinal Newman, who was recently mm. canonized a saint and certainly one of the, the greatest theologians of the of the 19th century. And uh, and uh, but Newman uh, was the first to bring it to the English speaking world. The founder of the oratory, St. Philip Neri, as you mentioned, mm. who lived in Rome, uh, very much in a time like our own. It was uh Post-Reformation, Counter-Reformation period, uh, the church was in a state of great corruption. Um, you know, certainly priests hadn't been formed or trained very well at that point, and the faithful had moved out to the margins of the life of the church. And Philip, in a very kind of personalistic way, sought to engage uh, individuals uh, throughout the course of the day, uh, simply on the street. And... Uh, in fact, he came to Rome as a layman himself and uh, was a man of deep prayer, had been associated with the Desert Fathers in his own reading and study. And that's what initially uh, attracted me to the study of the Fathers. And uh, mm. I know Vishit reading the, the biographies of St. Philip Neri, it said that he carried on his body the conferences with St. John Cassian and that one of his favorite writers, it was St. John Climacus. So it was quite natural for me uh, to explore that, to see what is it about these writers that formed Philip Neri's spirituality and helped him to guide so many uh, into the faith in such a, a deep way, but also to bring great healing. If you know, if you know anything about St. Philip Neri, that a great deal of his ministry was spent within the confessional, mm -hmm. that the first step for him was uh, the kind of healing that came through Christ, uh, through the acknowledgement of one, the poverty of one's sin and knowing the grace and the healing of the sacrament. And then he would gradually draw them in more deeply into the faith through these 
uh, little discussions on books like the conferences or or the latter. Mm. And uh, but Philip was a great ascetic himself. He saw himself as a desert monk living in the city. And uh, his first 10 years in Rome uh, were spent in the catacombs all, all night long in prayer, especially catacombs of St. Sebastian. And so I think it's really there that we begin to see the formation of a heart that was deeply rooted in prayer and the ascetical life that then would influence his ministry uh, there on out. And, um, and con that continued to, his, especially his life of prayer, continued to be a very strong thing for him, a very deep immersion. And uh, it's interesting, though, I think the, the Desert Fathers formed uh, his understanding of the human person, as well as uh, our human psychology, in such a way that it really refined his sensibilities. He was a great admirer of Savonarola, mm. the, the great Dominican who was uh, eventually burned at the stake, but it was a fiery preacher, uh, was uh, dealing with the corruption of the church in his time. And Philip, coming from Florence, uh, had a great association with Dominicans, but also knew of Savonarola. And he had one uh, painting hanging in his room, and it was of Savonarola. And yet, in his ministry, he took exactly the opposite path of Savonarola. It wasn't through the fire and brimstone preaching, but through this gentleness, tenderness, yeah. accessibility, that he would leave the key to his door out for people to come to many times of the day, including the night, to go to confession. And then it was through this simple guidance in the interior life that he helped renew uh, the life of the faithful in Rome, so much so that he became known uh, as the Apostle of Rome, mm. which is no small title. I think that he renewed the life of the eternal city, the spiritual life of the eternal city so greatly that he is given this title and still revered to this day in Rome and admired by so many of the faithful there. Amen. But uh, most people, as I mentioned, know the oratory through St. John Henry Newman, who was the first to bring it to the English-speaking world. And from there, it's uh, sp spread out and is growing very quickly. I think uh, mostly from priests that are attracted to the common life that Philip Neri set up. We don't take vows. We're a secular mm -hmm. priest who promised to live in community for life. And so I've been here at the oratory for 35 years now coming in uh, right at the end of my undergraduate years of study. Yeah. And um, so it's a beautiful thing. It allows a person to put down roots. And I think even in terms of my study of the fathers, it gave me the possibility to have this deep immersion uh, over the years because I had the support of my community, spiritual director, and then groups throughout the years that I would lead here allowed me to go deeper and deeper over the course of time. Yeah, and now it's not a diocesan priest or religious order. You said secular priest. So how does that kind of fit in? I can imagine that 95% of our listeners um, aren't uh, equipped with that knowledge. So if you could go into that just a little bit more. It's very unusual within the life of the church. We're considered a society of apostolic life. And so we're sort of in that in-between world mm. uh, that we don't take vows like the religious and yet, uh, and we're secular priests, but unlike diocesan priests, we aren't moved around and we live the common life. And Philip thought at the time that there were enough religious communities that he did not want to found another. And in fact, in some ways felt compelled to do so. What emerged first was the oratory which was a gathering of these people to discuss the faith. And it was only when Philip was 35 
that he was compelled by his spiritual director to seek out ordination that he might serve the, the people wow. uh, that were coming to him, in particular through the sacraments and especially through the confessional. So rather late in terms of coming to ordination. But we are in that kind of in-between space within the life of the church. And I think that's part of the reason that not many know about the oratory or the nature of its structure, although it's growing. We get calls you know, monthly from groups of priests who are exploring the oratory, want to know where to begin, where to find our constitutions, particular statutes, who to contact in order to begin to live that life in common for a period of time to see if they have a bishop, a benevolent bishop who is interested in starting a diocese within, or starting a, an oratory within his diocese. But even within the diocese, we are an autonomous house. So the bishop, um, we receive any public ministry or diocesan ministry from him, but we uh, exist as an autonomous house and have our own masses and programs and internal structure, electing a superior every three years. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, definitely something a little bit different uh, within the life of the church, but also very beautiful in uh, both the, the common life that you lead, but also the engagement with the faithful in a really intimate way. I think that's, it's uh, fascinating because uh, so many as the kind of common narrative and experience of a lot of the faithful is, is that you know, diocesan priests are overworked. Um, they're kind of aloof sometimes. They're kind of, uh, you know, you, you, they're hard to get a hold of. They're really, really busy. There's kind of, um, they're kind of administrators in a lot of ways. And there's just kind of, unfortunately, a distance between a lot of parish priests, not always, but in a lot of cases, they've got, you know, three parishes that they're managing or something like that. And they just, they can't engage with the faithful in that fatherly way. So it's really beautiful to have a society for a group of priests who are just living in the world um, and are just available for, for confession, for discussion, just for that, that close engagement. I think that is a big challenge facing the church today. I don't think it's by choice that diocesan priests no, yeah. have to function that way, especially here in our diocese, that often now they're responsible for three, four parishes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the number of people that they're responsible really makes it quite difficult for them, making yeah. themselves accessible in the confessional, let alone for appointments and spiritual direction. And uh, the, one of the constant refrains I hear is people saying that they can't find someone to offer spiritual direction. Either they feel that they don't have the experience or background to do so, or they just don't have the time available. So I'd say I'd about 30 hours, 25 to 30 hours a week that I would meet with people uh, for appointments wow. and uh, then the group work. And then we have confessions multiple times throughout the course of the day too. We're blessed with uh, half a dozen priests and have another one coming up for ordination here soon. And, um, and I think that's one of the blessings of the oratory. Once the word gets out, the, the lines are out the door uh, because there's such a need. And during the wow. pandemic in particular, it was a very powerful thing because people were longing uh, to know the grace of the sacrament. And we were hearing them outside and people were kneeling in the rain uh, just for the opportunity to go to confession. But it is a, a blessing, you know, I think um, just to be accessible for that reason. And it was one of the things that attracted me to the oratory. I'd moved about a dozen times growing up. And the stability of the oratory mm -hmm. staying in one place is very attractive. And it does allow you to put down roots 
we work here in Pittsburgh uh, in university ministry to the largest secular universities, University of Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon, and Chatham University. And uh, although our ministry is broadening out now, we have a number of guys teaching in the Catholic schools. And then I, in particular, work with the secular oratory, which would be like our third order, and for all the adults who come here to the oratory for formation. And, uh, and so it does make us and allow us to have a greater accessibility, I think, on a daily basis. So I have a, I have a, a question that, that kind of gets to the main topic today related to the um, Desert Fathers and the spirituality that they represent. Um, and, and I... Uh, I have a great love of kind of, as we were talking before the show, Eastern Christianity and kind of that desert, desert father spirituality. Um, but a lot of Catholics uh, in, in America, at least, um, uh, and probably a lot of Europe, um, they just kind of think of, of Catholicism. Catholicism is Roman Catholicism. There is nothing else. Um, and it went kind of, you know, St. Paul, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, and then... Yeah. And, and today, <laughs> that's it. Like there's like, there's a huge swaths of church history that are missed and people don't often know who Gregory of Nyssa is or um, St. John Climacus or, or any of these um, many, these great giants of the early church, not to mention the Desert Fathers who had kind of a really unique take on the, the spiritual life. So what really attracted you to them? What do you love about the, the spirituality that they represent? And how can that enrich kind of even a Roman Catholic who says, well, you know, I, I the counter-reformation saints are kind of who I'm familiar with. And other than that, I don't really know well, anything think, about this early church stuff. Right. I think you're exactly right that most Catholics aren't aware of the fact that the, the Desert Fathers are uh, exist or are so accessible to us now, especially within English. And, uh, and certainly don't know of the English, Eastern Rites or uh, even too much about the Orthodox Church. And yet, you know, certainly the call of Vatican II was uh, ressourcement, uh, going back to the sources of our faith, scriptures, spiritual tradition, theological tradition. And this was one of the motivations for me to, to do exactly that. And what many Catholics don't understand is that this is part of our common patrimony, that these fathers might be from the East, uh, but really monasticism emerges from the East. And it's only through St. John Cassian that the, the wisdom and the beauty of the monastic tradition uh, and of the Desert Fathers makes it way, its way to the Western monasteries and begins to be, become a part of the, the formative elements of their, of their role. In fact, St. John Cassian, or I'm sorry, St. Benedict uh, has it as one of the required readings in, in the role. And so St. John Cassian, who lived with the Desert Fathers for years in, in the Wadi Natrun area of, of Egypt, just right outside of Cairo, uh, brought all this back to us. So it's our, our patrimony. This belongs to us. It doesn't belong to the, the Eastern Rites alone or certainly to the Eastern Orthodox alone. That most of the writers say of the Evergatinos, which is a collection of the writings of the Fathers, pretty much from the fourth to the seventh century. This is all prior to the split, uh, so very early writers of the church, and they really provide us with the foundation of the spiritual tradition as a whole. So even the, the great saints that we would see around the, the Counter-Reformation, you know, whether it's Teresa of Avila, Ignatius of Loyola, Philip Neri, um, 
you know, they would have all been formed out of this tradition. And, and certainly all modern uh, monastic life is formed out of this tradition. And we've gotten to this point where uh, I think people are looking for things that make the spiritual life accessible, but often seek to leapfrog, leapfrog, I'm sorry, leapfrog over the spiritual tradition and doing the work of that, of going back to the roots of that spiritual tradition and seeing Christianity as an ascetical religion. You know, we're a lot of things, doctrinal, creedal, yeah. ecclesial, sacramental, but one would add to that and must necessarily add to that ascetical. And ascesis simply means the exercise of the faith. And so how is it that one embraces the grace of one's baptism or allows the grace that we receive in the Holy Eucharist to bear the greatest fruit for us? How is it that we begin to live from Eucharist to Eucharist and have that be something that's transformative and that allows us to begin to live a saintly life, to overcome the passions, to grow in the virtues? And this has almost become completely absent, I think, in yeah. modern spiritual writing. And there was a criticism years back uh, before Benedict II became Pope of the centering prayer movement. Yeah. And one of the critiques of it is that it was this introduction to the contemplative element that we find within the hesychatic tradition, uh, the pursuit of stillness of heart that we see within the writings of the, of the Eastern Fathers, but absent the ascetical element uh, in terms of struggling with the passions, the moral life, uh, growing in the life of virtue and developing in the life of prayer. And so it's exposing people to the heights of that spirituality, which would be contemplative prayer without doing the necessary work of internal formation. And that's, you know, there's a kind of danger within that. And I think a lot of uh, modern Christians have uh, a kind of eclectic view of the spiritual life will pick and choose from various spiritual traditions to speak to them, Franciscan, Carmelite, Benedictine, and yet in some of those, they fail to make the connection uh, with the Desert Fathers and see how they are rooted in this greater tradition that goes all the way back to the fourth century and before. And, uh, and so I think this is what, in the work that I've been doing over the years, trying to address, certainly for myself, first and foremost, and then in the course of groups over about 27 years now and then I've, I've been able to go a little bit deeper with it and now that i'm not in campus ministry any longer i can uh, do a verbatim reading of text to read an entire corpus of writings of the fathers without any time constraints whatsoever and be able to unpack it for for groups and it's then that things have really taken off and surprisingly and i think even providentially during the pandemic I was forced to go to uh, the use of Zoom for our groups. Uh, but then in the process of doing so, the people who listen via podcast started participating directly and the numbers doubled. And with that came an enrichment of the discuss discussion, the comments, the questions were so beautiful that the group has continued to grow over time. And now we have two groups uh, weekly on it. Uh, right now we're reading St. Theophan the Recluse, who's a more modern writer, uh, his correspondence with a young woman who wanted to live the full dignity of the Christian and begins to seek uh, to engage in this correspondence with him at a distance. And then we're also reading the Avergitinos, which is a four-volume series, uh, each made up of 50 hypotheses 
uh, on very spiritual subjects and looking at the fathers and the lives of the fathers as a way of unpacking that. So we're in the first volume about 87 pages in. So we expect it's going to take us probably six to 10 years wow. to get through it all, but it, it's worth it. It's, yeah. it's been very fruitful. That's great. And uh, so I want to talk about some of those things that were lost. Um, but I first think it's important for us to talk about why they were lost, because, you know, Eastern spirituality was kind of the epicenter of, of thought and practice um, all the way up until the 1400s. Right. Then then there was the fall to the Turks. Um, but I'm not a historian and I'd like to hear from you why why we lost these things why is the western world so uh or the western you know let's call it catholicism or christianity so um void of that um that f amazing fruit knowledge and wisdom that we had and um i mean i guess how, you're bringing it back and that's that's what we're here but i mean things like theosis and i mean all of these things have been have been just lost and a good majority of people don't even know the word I just stated. And so I'd love to hear uh, from you kind of how we got to this place. Right. I think well, certainly uh, the break between the church, the break, the break of the unity between East and West is mm -hmm. the fundamental uh, thing for us that uh, sets us on different tracks. And so what is what became associated with the East was held at arm's length or with a kind of suspicion at times, and it is a very different way. It's the approach is apophatic, which is, uh, you know, focusing more on the, the reality that we can't know God as he is in himself, uh, other than walking in that dark path of faith and stilling and silencing the heart as well as the passions. Whereas the Western mm -hmm. approach is uh, more uh, discursive meditation, what we would see, say, for example, in Teresa of Avila or John of the Cross or some of the uh, writers closer to our own time. So the, the breakdown of the unity of the church, I think, when where we cease to begin to see those early writings as part of our patrimony, that these belong to us as much as to the Eastern rites or to the Eastern Orthodox Church. But I think even among the Orthodox, uh, there was a... An, and the union with the West, there was this breakdown because of the distance, that there is this access that we have now in terms of communication, ease of communication, uh, but also translation. Like some of the works that I'm uh, addressing with our groups here weren't translated into English until about 10 years ago, some more recently. We had no access to the work on uh, Isaac the Syrian's ascetical homilies. Uh, was only translated within the last 10 years. And they had to they had to educate one of their men in Syriac in order to get a good translation of the entire text. And so it's only in modern times that really, unless we are linguists, that uh, that we would have, the, the modern man would have access to these extraordinary materials. But we have to remember that, you know, a lot of the teachings of the councils, those early councils, uh, getting to the, the East would take a century, especially for, say, like St. Isaac the Syrian, that the Syriac church was even separated from the Eastern church. Uh, and so they were living this the, the life in a beautiful way, liturgically, spiritually, ascetically, uh, but there wasn't that level of communication. And yet some of the most beautiful writings come uh, from them, Ephraim the Syrian, you know, his spiritual psalter is extraordinary, Incredible, and certainly, yeah. Yeah. and certainly Saint Isaac. 
And so distance language was always a problem. Uh, and then I think uh, with that, then uh, in sort of both, both churches, to be honest with you, uh, there was a, sort of a diminishment in terms of teaching. It became locked in the monasteries, if you will, rather than seen as something to be accessible uh, for all people. And uh, it was interesting when I first started my study of this, I began to see how false this was to the initial intention of those who compiled these works, that the Eastern Orthodox underwent something similar to what we would say Vatican II did in some measure uh, prior to the, the putting together of the Philokalia. Uh, there was a group uh, of, of monks on Mount Athos called the Kolovades who began to look at the spiritual tradition very deeply as well as the liturgical tradition, some abuses there. And they realized that they, while living the monastic life, they weren't living the tradition. They had moved away completely from the hesychatic tradition that we find within the, the Eastern Fathers. And so there was this great renewal that took place liturgically as well as spiritually at that time. And then with St. Marcarius and St. Nicodemus who compiled the Philokalia, uh, they were part of the fruit of that. And it's from Mount Athos, then it begins to spread uh, throughout the Orthodox world and then eventually to Russia. You know, Athos becomes the spiritual center of the Eastern Church and its spiritual life. And from there, this great spiritual tradition began to emerge until finally it comes to the West. But much slower, I think, in coming to us, certainly, and becoming accessible. And then you pair that with, uh, I think, a move towards uh, a kind of uh, legalism, intellectualism, uh, uh, kind of hyper-focus on moralism in terms of the spiritual life. Not that morality isn't a part, uh, certainly, of our spiritual life. It is. And certainly the use of our intellect and being able to articulate our faith and the spiritual life is a part of it. But I, I think we have a tendency to live in our minds in the West, especially from uh, really from the Enlightenment on. And this idea of the fathers uh, that our knowledge of God, as well as our knowledge of the spiritual life, comes through experience, not through uh, simply the use of reason and intellect. It's only experiential knowledge that gives rise to true theology, true knowledge of God. And so outside of the ascetic life, they wouldn't understand what we were talking about. And they certainly wouldn't understand schools of theology. You know, people going to get a doctorate in theology outside of any kind of formation in the spiritual life. And I don't even think they would understand seminaries in the way that they are set up today, too, because so much of that is rooted in the, certainly the book knowledge, the study of theology, but not often a very strong emphasis upon the spiritual life and the moral life. And we've seen the fruit of that, the unfortunate fr fruit of that. And yeah. I think the Lunacher study that studied uh, the breakdown within the priesthood and the rise of the scandals uh, identified the, the lack of the ascetical life mm. as being at the very heart of the aberrations that we've, the moral aberrations that we've seen and the sexual aberrations that we've seen emerge and take root within the life of the clergy. So and true. so all of these things have convinced me more and more over the course of time how essential it is. And certainly as a priest and as a member of a community, the perseverance in the life endurance, uh, you begin to see how important asceticism 
is. The depth of prayer, the ordering of the passions, uh, the stilling of the mind and the heart, that there's so much noise within the world. And often the Catholic community, uh, not you gentlemen, of course, but I think so, so often online, we see that we often add to the noise uh, of the world because so much of our discussion doesn't have to do with living the Christian life or with this interior formation or this kind of theology that is rooted in this experiential knowledge of God that arises out of the ascetic life. But is, uh, you know, so much of the discussion is arguments about doctrine or liturgy. And sometimes those arguments can become very fierce and filled with a kind of anger. And I think whenever that emerges, it, my mind turns off immediately. Mm. Uh, when there, we see even this fundamental humility in the pursuit of truth begin to break, break down among Christian men and women. Absolutely. I heard you mentioning something similar to that on one of your um, uh, locally or your your group discussions. Mm -hmm. And that came up and you mentioned that a podcast can add to the noise uh, that humored me. I'm listening to your podcast. Then me, I'm like, yeah, I should I should shut this off. And but you're right. And it, it, it is it, we're all called to discern these things and to be intentional about every moment throughout our avoid idleness. But that doesn't mean fill it with noise. Right. Really, we talk to talk to God about what is meritorious in that moment and what you should be doing on a regular basis. That's, that's right. We have to avoid a kind seeking to become dilettantes whether it's in mm -hmm. theology or our knowledge of the Desert Fathers. Like one can get up and give a talk about the Desert Fathers and yet not be living it or striving to live it. And that's every bit as dangerous as studying and writing about theology outside of the context of, the, of this living and vital relationship with Christ and the ascetical struggle. In fact, the Desert Fathers called it demonic theology outside of the context of, of that reality. Mm. And, uh, and so even groups like this of studying the fathers can be something dangerous if it is meant, if it's serving simply uh, the satisfaction of a kind of curiosity or to be able to say, I've read Isaac the Syrian or something along those lines that it's not going to bear much fruit. And so I find a lot of my time spent with the group saying, you know, it's good that we struggle with this or if we walk away confused by what we've just read, or if it upsets our world or seems to turn our world on its head, it's a good thing because the, the fathers were deeply rooted within the scriptures, deeply rooted within the gospels. And so often we've lost the sight of the revolutionary nature of the gospel. And we can read it. It often strikes me when I get up to preach and it'll be the most fierce gospel, you know, most challenging gospel. And when you get to that and say the gospel of the Lord and everybody says, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, this kind of enthusiasm where there probably should be tears in our eyes and in a sense, a little bit of fear and trembling, knowing often how far our hearts are from that reality and how far we are from living it out. If you think about it, the teachings on the, the Holy Eucharist or the Beatitudes, it was certainly revolutionary in his own day, revolutionary enough that it led to his death. And, you know, I've often thought that the words of the gospel coming from someone like St. Paul, who was stoned, lashed, you know, shipwrecked, that they probably had a lot more power than they do, they do coming from me from the pulpit. You know, hearing somebody preach the gospel with a couple teeth knocked out, probably bloody and bruised, 
would I know impact my imagination and my mind far more than somebody you know who seems to be eloquent but not necessarily preaching out of the, the depth of their heart or out of experience. And so I think that's one of the important things to see about the Desert Fathers, that the source for them was one thing, was Christ, the sacraments, and the, and the scriptures. It was this living and vital relationship with Christ. That's what drove them to the desert, the desire to give themselves over, themselves over to him fully, to engage in that spiritual battle that they knew uh, rest within the, the human heart. And they knew, more importantly, that one does not have to go to the desert to do that. The desert lies within. And I think that's what Philip Neary understood. And that's even what the compilers of the Philokalia understood. They said this is not meant for the black robes. It's not meant to be kept within the monastery. That what is best and most beautiful about our spiritual tradition is meant for all. And so this is part of the fruit of our baptism, that we've been called to this deep intimacy with God, a radical union communion with him, and the transformation that that brings about. So everything that the fathers put forward is meant to be embraced and practiced by us. And it might have to take place within the, the context of our station in life, whether it be married or single or secular priest or member of the community. But nonetheless, we're to pursue this holiness that we see in, in the fathers with the, with the same zeal. In fact, Theophan, who we're, we're reading now, had a great love of St. John Climacus, and they're separated, you know, by, uh, they probably by 13 uh, centuries, and he's probably capable of distilling Climacus better than anyone else. And he does this within 80 letters to this young woman named Anastasia, uh, never even mentioning Climacus by name, but he unpacks the fullness of that spiritual tradition for her in this correspondence where he doesn't water it down. It's so substantive and beautiful that he prepares her for the, the nature of the spiritual battle that she's going to experience within the world. And she ends up becoming a nun at the end of it, but you know it was never his intention to lead her there, other than what she desired the most, to again, to embrace the full dignity of what it is to be a Christian woman. Mm. And that's exactly the path that he led her upon. And so in some ways, I feel you know, that's what our, our groups are about here. And again, first and foremost, for myself. Yeah. Just a little bit of historical background. I, you know, I was exposed to the oratory very early on. And Sam, you mentioned having this long-term attraction to it. And it was for me as well, and something providential, I think in so many different ways, it was given as a gift, the first three volumes, which were the only volumes uh, translated into English at that point. And I consumed them. Not that you're supposed to read them that way, but I just, when I first read them, I knew that this is what I needed. Because I had been brought up as a Christian, I had faith. Uh, but I came from outside of Catholicism, so it was, I was even more divorced from the fullness of the theological and spiritual tradition. So I didn't have this kind of spiritual formation whatsoever. And certainly, like any young man, struggling with the passions and as, as it is living in the world. And here I found within the Desert Fathers, not only uh, a very clear sense of how the passions manifest themselves, but also the remedies that the Fathers put forward for us in terms of striving to overcome them, that in many ways they were the first depth psychologists. Uh, they knew the interior workings of the mind and the heart with such clarity 
that it's uncanny at times, that uh, oftentimes I think we see them as being archaic, their writings, when in reality, they see the workings of the human mind in a, with a far greater clarity than modern psychotherapy. And being uh, educated in both fields, I've come to see that. You know, modern psychotherapy is a very sharp tool and it can be very fruitful and it's even transformed the way that I listen to people on a day-to-day basis for the things that are said, not said, being aware of the trauma and the effects of that trauma. But the, the, the fathers are the precursor to all of this and we've never reached really what they've held out to us in the sense of the depth and the beauty of it. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I I agree. I, I you know, I'm kind of being trained as a therapist myself right now. And I, one of the things that I I um, love about the the fathers is how, how, yeah, like you said, they have the same insights. I have a book about how uh, cognitive behavioral therapy was preceded by the, by, by the desert fathers, like by like uh, 1500 years at least. Um, and, and yet, uh, yet, um, they were the real soul doctors, you know, they, they, to them, the soul was a, a real domain, uh, kind of like what Carl Jung talked about, like, you know, in, in the 1950s, well, he's like, the soul is real. Like, that's what people don't understand is the soul is real. And they're like, and uh, I can hear the desert father saying, yeah, I told you so like, <laughs> like 1500 years ago. But, but one of the things I, I think what has attracted me about the East and kind of that desert tradition and, 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 and just a lot of the ethos of the, the Eastern tradition is really is the emphasis on the heart. Um, and I think uh, the, the depth of feeling that you get when you read a lot of the Eastern writers is, is incredible. I mean, like Isaac, the Syrian again is, just just like the poetry and the richness of what he's he's yeah there's theology there if you want to think of it that way but it's not that's not what it is it's poetry it's it's um it, it's it's the heart speaking in these things and and i think in the west uh as you said the intellect uh and sense of discursive reason has kind of taken the driver's seat where the mind is not wrong uh, the intellect is not wrong um, but it's meant to be the servant rather than the master. And in the West, we've let the discursive reason become the master. And the heart, if it exists at all, certainly takes a back seat. Mm-hmm. What I love about the East is it talks about bringing the mind into the heart right. uh, and letting the mind be the servant of the heart in the sense that the heart reaches contact with spiritual realities first. Right. And then the mind reflects on them. Um, and kind of shares them or the fruits of what it's discovered, but it's not, it's not the master. It's not the one uh, directing the show. And I think that's one thing that um, we need to learn how to do is, and I think the scholastics truth be told would probably agree with that. And, you know, the, the intellect, it had more in common with like the Eastern noose than it did That's right. uh, than uh, the discursive reason, what we often think of as intellect. It was the eye of the soul that we could perceive spiritual realities intuitively. Um, but I, that's why one thing I love, but I, one of the things I, that I'm wondering is like, so you're living, you're living in a, in a Western context in a, in a church that often doesn't understand, has lost sight of these things or forgotten them or, and I'm wondering how you handle that because um, there's a lot of people who 
uh, would say, well, why don't you just jump ship and just become Orthodox or whatever? You know, you obviously have an affinity for that. Like, why do you stay Western or whatever? And so I'm just wondering, how do you handle that tension or perceived tension, at least, between kind of the the uh, mind first approach of a lot of Western theology and spiritual practice and kind of the heart first approach of the East, at least for you? How does that work out? Well, that's a lot. Where would you like to begin? <laughs> uh, you're like the people in my group. I still have to start writing things down and try to, to answer the questions. But, you know, I think part of it is our understanding, even of psychotherapy, that you're right, that uh, there's been a mistranslation of it. It's really healing of the soul, psych psyche. And the Eastern Fathers understood that. And we've turned it in, as you said, to intellect or even into emotion on some level, uh, where it is far more than that, that it's, you know, the deepest part of who we are as human beings, the fundamental element of who we are. And you're right, again, in terms of the Western fathers like Aquinas and others who understood that, you know, they understood the language and they articulated that in a Western way that the Western mind could understand. But I think over the course of time, we've moved further and further away from that, that, of seeing the noose, not as intellect, but eye of the heart, eye of the soul. And this is what is, needs to be purified through the ascetical life and the sacramental life in order that we might comprehend divine realities. And so even say St. John of the Cross, he understood this very well. He took Thomas Aquinas's uh, anthropology and he adapted it in light of his uh, his experience of the spiritual life. But he was very much in line with Aquinas in that regard. And he saw faith as a dark, obscure knowing that it is a kind of comp comprehension of the truth. But intellect, reason, as they are in and of themselves, are never never capable of capturing the reality of God. Reason, intellect, imagination, all these things might serve us very well within the spiritual life, help us grow in devotion, help us to understand the faith, help us even in our meditation upon the scriptures and the, and the life of Christ. But as one uh, proceeds along the spiritual life, what John of the cross began to see is that those faculties begin to fail us and uh, because of their incapacity, they're not eternal. And that it is only through faith that God draws us along. So in some sense, we have to let go of those things and be willing to walk along the path of that darkness, allow God to, to guide us, which is a difficult thing because it means letting go of control, letting go, letting go of a ma managing our spiritual life and allowing God to guide and direct us according to his will and along the path that he desires for us for sanctity. And so it means letting go of some of the crutches that have served us very well in the past. And John describes this as being very painful he says it's like a lig ligature, a break, when we make a movement into a, this different stage of the spiritual life, where we begin to walk along this path uh, of that dark, obscure knowing. When we move, you know, uh, through the uh, dark night of the senses, the dark night of the soul, you know, as we make each of those movements, we uh, let go of more and more and find ourselves resting in silence. Uh, which allows God to speak a word that is equal to himself, the Carthusians tell us, which is an extraordinary thing. That when we, this, this is why silence is often seen as the language of God, 
because it allows him to communicate this word to us that, again, is beyond the confines of the human mind, that is grasped in and through faith, but nonetheless, and understood, but nonetheless beyond mere intellect. And so for John, you know, he writes in poetry very much like uh, Ephraim the Syrian, uh, but then sort of unpacks it for the Carmelite nuns during the Reformation of the Carmelites. But he understood that there was a breakdown in his own language. The only way that he could capture the immensity of it was through the use of poetry. And even there, he saw it as wanting to, to capture what he experienced in the spiritual life. So we have it in the way West. There is this consistency between East and West. But the language that is used is so different that one uh, can't be lazy in uh, moving back and forth between the two traditions. There has to be a willingness and a generosity of spirit rather than a hermeneutic of suspicion. We have to have this great generosity of spirit where we are listening to what the fathers are teaching us, how they're using language, their anthropology, their psychology, in order to enter into what, what they are saying and what they are teaching. And for me, you know, that took over 20 years mm. to begin to understand conceptually some of the things that they were saying. It was only through the work of an author named Herothios Vlakos, who wrote a book called Orthodox Psychotherapy, where he breaks down uh, much of the, the father's use of language and their understanding of human psychology and the spiritual life, that these things begin to resonate with me. And from that point on, that was a good 20 years ago, but from that point on, more and more has become accessible for me to flesh it out, flesh it out, and then also through my readings, of the fathers, things became more and more clear. But, you know, again, that took over 25 years to the point where I felt that I could be comfortable, you know, uh, speaking to others and I, about it and engaging them. And even then, there are no experts in the Desert Fathers. Hmm. You know, because, it, again, it's one thing to understand their writings, their language. It's another thing to live it. And a big part of understanding the spiritual tradition, East or West, comes from embracing it, striving for the holiness of life that we see within the saints. And so what we do in our groups always has to go far beyond it. There has to be kind of a, a, an internalized, if you will, monasticism, internalized uh, spirituality of the fathers for, for it to bear fruit. Yeah. I mean, it's just powerful. I can comfortably say that this is probably going to be a part one of, you know, we'll have to have you back uh, because I just have a hundred other awesome questions floating through my head, things I'd like to talk about. Um, if we could, I want to shift to uh, asceticism and I want to shift to a conversation on that uh, for um, myself and, and our listeners and, and Sam. It's it's something that we've all practiced and it's something that we run into and we talk about fasting and we talk about abstinence and we talk about a pebble in the shoe or something along those lines. And I feel like myself included as something I've been uh, wrestling with that we look at asceticism, not as like the desert fathers talked about it, the strengthening of the will, right? We've got academics and theologians that are strengthening of the mind. Um, and we, we ignore the will and the need to strengthen that. 
And instead, we look at asceticism as more of like reparation for our sins. And we we kind of get this Gnostic view, myself included, you know, of kind of like, you know, these things are bad. Our passions and our desires are, are bad. And we need to uh, control them. We need to bridle these bad things within us instead of, no, they were made good and we have to order them. And how do we do that with strengthening our will? And and it, and it was honestly um, um, uh, me listening to to a conversation that you were having with another individual uh, that that a while back got me wrestling with this idea of just that a, a strengthening of the will, just like an athlete that goes and practice or works out for eight hours a day. What are we doing to strengthen our will to be able to control ourselves from these passions? And I'd love to hear you talk about some of these things that the Desert Fathers did, some of these things that um, were are lost on us, and maybe a better understanding of the importance of asceticism in our own lives. Right. Yes, excellent question, because I think you're right. And there are two things that have derailed the place of asceticism within our spiritual lives. And part of it is the, the link with it being penitential. You know, that it's, you know, it's something that we take upon us, as you said, to make reparation for sins that we've committed. Mm-hmm. Or it has become episodic, something that we do maybe through the 40 days of Lent, uh, but then stop doing when we reach Easter or lighten those disciplines. And often during that 40-day 40, uh, 40 period, we find them so difficult because they are episodic. You know, to try fasting throughout Lent is a very difficult thing when the body is not used to it, has not adjusted to it. And what you one person ends up with is usually feeling cranky or tired, having bad breath. But it's hardly something that uh, deepens their spiritual life. <laughs> and people begin to look forward to the time <laughs> that they can let go of asceticism. And uh, there are two things that come to mind immediately. It's in the role of Benedict. Uh, there's a, a, a professor of mine from seminary who did a, a study. I went to a Benedictine seminary and he wrote joy, uh, wrote a book called Joy and Lent. And he studied the, the, how often Benedict used joy within the word joy within the role. And it all is found in this section on Lent because the deepening of those spiritual disciplines leads one to a deepening intimacy with God, a greater freedom from the passions. And so one should experience a, a flowering of joy with that ascetical life. And, uh, and so this should tell us something, that asceticism cannot be episodic. It has to be a regular part of our spiritual life. And it can't be simply penitential, but it, we have to see it as something that is curative and see the hospital, the church is a hospital, and the sacraments is a source of healing, and that these practices of the spiritual life is a source of healing too, in order that our desires, in order that our thoughts, and our whole being might be directed toward God. You're right, the fathers did not have a negative anthropology. Yeah. Over and over again, you hear within their writings, the, worst, the use of the word desire, and it's a curious thing to find. Because they said without desire, there's no gain in the spiritual life. They understood the meaning of that word, uh, as we should as well, that it means a sense of lack, a sense of incompleteness that is only found in God. And so we should be men and women of desire who are constantly hungering and thirsting for God and doing everything to nourish ourselves 
in the spiritual life to draw close to him. And we see Jesus himself transform our understanding of asceticism in the gospel in the most powerful way. If you remember when he speaks of fasting and he's questioned why his disciples don't fast, he says to the crowds, you know, that this is not a time for them to be fasting. They have the bridegroom with them. When the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. And altogether, a new kind of fasting will begin. Penitential, certainly as it had been, but now forever linked to intimacy with Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, who is also the bread of life. That our desire, our hunger, is forever now connected to our desire and our hunger for the one alone who can nourish us upon his love. And so as one engages, say, for example, in the practice of fasting, consciously in our mind, we should have within us this greater desire to move towards Christ and to link it to our prayer, not to engage it as a a specific practice that is abstracted from the personal relationship with Christ. It's meant to foster this deeper intimacy with him. And so far from uh, practicing it on an episodic level, fasting should be practiced constantly throughout the course of the year. There might be times where it deepens and times where it lightens, depending on uh, where we are in the liturgical year. But nonetheless, it should be a constant. And I'll go a step further than that, that with a lot of these disciplines, we should have a love for them, a love Mm -hmm. for silence a love for fasting. There's a a Benedictine monk who wrote a book called To Love Fasting. And it was intriguing for me because he connects it with what we've been talking about here. If we love it, we're going to embrace it. And if we embrace it fully, it's going to bear the most fruit for us. I think our big problem is that we've lost sight of the sense that asceticism is a human reality. It is in every part of our life. We discipline ourselves in pursuing everything that we love. So the great musician will spend six hours practicing, will study theory, will be take lessons for years. The great athlete will be in the weight room, will be studying plays, will be play the game from their youth to adulthood. Academics will engage in asceticism. They'll exercise the, the role that they're in at that moment and the discipline that is necessary in order that they might perfect their knowledge in a certain subject. So going to classes, studying long hours, immersing themselves in the field, and they're not, they don't count the cost. They do it because they, they love it. And yet when it comes to asceticism, we as Christians approach it in this episodic fashion or simply as if it should be guided by inspiration when we feel like doing it or when we feel moved. Whereas that is completely foreign to the spiritual tradition and the writings uh, of the fathers uh, altogether, that these are things that we are to love, that we see them as guiding us to Christ, as, as, as forming and guiding our desires, our thoughts toward God, ordering those fundamental aspects of who we are toward God in order that we might become who we are meant to be that we move from glory to glory, that the image of Christ comes to to perfection within us gradually, that we put on the mind of Christ, that we become one heart with him. And this affects everything that we do. I mean, the Eucharist, as we know, is the center of our, our life as Christians. And really, we should be living from Eucharist to Eucharist. 
that we, you know, we enter into this relationship of deep intimacy with the Lord. We receive him and we receive the fullness of that life and grace. And we are meant to embrace it in order that we might be transformed even more fully. And, uh, and we allow that grace to bear fruit in our lives until we enter into that uh, radical communion with God again. And if there's a breakdown in that relationship, we seek through the sacrament of confession to enter back into it again. And we've become very consumeristic about the spiritual yeah. life and our relationship with Christ. I go to Mass to receive something important. And so everybody comes up to receive Holy Communion with a kind of herd mentality, mm. but not necessarily understanding who it is that they receive, but also what they are saying amen to. You know, unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Do not resist one who is evil. You know, these are all, all require heroic virtue from us. And so, you know, asceticism is not only, you mentioned strengthening the will, that's part of it, and a very important part of it. But more, more the greater thing of importance is that it humbles us mm -hmm. in mind and body, that we acknowledge that strength and grace comes to us from God alone, always grace, the motivation for us to enter into the spiritual life, what transforms us, what brings us to our final goal is the grace and the mercy of God. The ascetical life simply is our seeking to allow that to bear as much fruit as possible. Amen. That's, Thank you, Father. That's amazing. I, I, I do think the, the point about loving things and being willing to make the sacrifices right in order to attain a certain level um you know is is very important um it, but what would you say to someone who would say well that's nice uh but i don't feel that love i don't feel that inspiration to make the needed ascetical practices a part of my life or they just feel like a nuisance they just feel like a distraction from whatever I mean you know, I want to grow but like I just don't I don't feel that love inspiring me right now how can I cultivate that I, I think I would come back with another question and simply say why and you know when I first started spiritual direction I, I would often ask people you know, who is Christ for you and it was interesting it's they'd sort of get a confused look on their face quisitive at first then confused and then more than once I had people burst into tears because they couldn't answer the question. So I stopped asking that at the beginning. It was spiritual direction <laughs> just became, because it became too traumatic. But I think it was telling, though, that often Christ for us becomes this abstract figure who lived 2,000 years ago. And we might even acknowledge him on an intellectual level as our savior. But there's a huge difference between seeing him as our savior and seeing him as the heavenly bridegroom the one that we live in this living and vital relationship with, who nourishes us unto everlasting life, and who ultimately has elevated our humanity to the point that it, it participates in the life of the Trinity, that that's what we are desti destined for, deification, to participate in the eternal life and love of God. And to be honest with you, most people have never heard that. Mm. And so I don't think we can fault anyone for having that lack of desire, because what is desirous has not been put before them, you know, from a, from a heart that is living it deeply and longs for it. 
it's really, you know, this kind of mimicking, like children. You know, children mimic what their parents do. They learn to love what their parents love. There's nothing more impactful than seeing a father on his knees in prayers for a son. You know, that's going to be the image that rests with him for the rest of his life. And it's how the parents form them to have that love within their heart for Christ, and, but all, also all the things that surround that, the love of the church, the love of liturgy that begins at that early stage. We've had a couple generations now where that has not existed. And we, we cannot feel that anybody's going to spoon feed us any longer. Religious communities have uh, devolved into non-existence. Pittsburgh was the hub of so many mother houses. Can't believe it. And now they've all, they've all closed, except for a few that have maintained this identity. So it rests with us, I think, in these small islands, first of the home, and then in par parishes, groups like at the oratory, uh, which, which I see developing not only here, but other places where we begin to immerse ourselves in that which is beautiful. I think the, the, the compendium of the writings of the fathers was called philokalia for a reason. It can mean compendium, but the etymology of the word is love of the beautiful. And what we are entering into is exposing us to divine beauty, but also to the most beautiful person that ever existed, Christ. And I think when we put this before people in an undi undiluted fashion, and when they see it for the first time, you know, something awakens within them to create that desire, that longing. And as a convert, you probably know this. And my first experience of Catholicism was at Mass. I hadn't a clue what was going on. But what I saw was the focus of the students, on, of all the students, of what was going on at the altar. This intense focus that I'd never seen before and the prayers that the priest was saying. And that was enough to alter my uh, understanding of things, at least to begin the process that opened me up to a sacramental worldview. Uh, and changed my view of the incarnation, that this is something that changed our experience of God forever. And that our experience is every bit as, is meant to be every bit as intimate, tangible, concrete as it was for the disciples. In fact, more so, you know, that we are able, you know, through the gift of the spirit, through the sacramental life, uh, to have this unparalleled experience of intimacy with God and also capture something of the beauty of that. And so Catholic Christians should be the most joyful of individuals, and that expression of love for the faith and love for the ascetical life should be our fundamental attitude, and it just isn't. And so our first step has to begin with us. We have to allow this to penetrate our hearts, to undergo this deep conversion and repentance, and that's where the focus has to be, the purification of our own hearts. And like God, that's sort of that pearl of great price. That's the mustard seed, that small seed that must grow and develop. But it has to begin internally. I think so much of our focus in Christianity now is outward looking and focused upon the world where we've lost this sense of the kingdom of God dwelling within. You know, we only need to go one place, and that's two inches beneath the surface of the chest you know, in our spiritual life in order to experience this enormous transformation. And yet we never go there. 
we move from distraction to distraction precisely to keep us to, from going there. And often, you know, there's a demonic element that we struggle with there too. We struggle against principalities and powers, not just our natural weaknesses, you know, that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And when you awaken to that, then the spiritual life begins to change. You realize that there is a vigilance that has to be maintained at every moment. St. Isaac the Syrian once said, and it sort of jarred everybody in the group, he said, in this life, there is no Sabbath from the spiritual battle. It's not until we're in the grave that we rest. And because the evil one never rests. Yeah. And is relentless. And, you know, it's beginning to see these things in a way that I think move us in that direction that cultivates that desire that you spoke of. Yeah. And so it's not only negligence on the part of people. I think it's our failure at catechesis Absolutely. and formation. St. John Chrysostom said something really interesting. I came across one of his readings. We had been talking in the group about keeping night vigils and how monks will break the night for prayer, that there's this deep silence that emerges and the prayer can be very deep there. And St. John Chrysostom said, this should be done in families, that you break the night and you pray together. And he said, even with the little children, that you would wake them up they might say a prayer, and then they you send them back to bed. But it's cultivating them from, you know, even pre-verbal times, you know, from, you know, toddlerhood to begin to pursue Christ at every moment of our life. Hmm. I think if we did that, you know, that if, if there was this kind of interiorized monasticism, but also if it was interiorized within the life of the family. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So, so much to reflect on there. Uh, pretty unbelievable. Um, the quote that came to mind, though, is, is St. John Paul II when he said, it is Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness. He is waiting for you when nothing else you find satisfies you. He is the beauty to which you are so attracted. That's right. Um, and that's found in the, the St. Nicodemus, who was one of the compilers, says that directly, that it's ultimately Christ, the most beautiful of persons that draws us on this journey and, and help, helps us enter into this life. Outside of that, you know, our spiritual efforts come to naught. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So true. If we could awaken well, that in the 21st century church, Right. It that's where renewal is going to come from. And that's where I think Benedict understood it. John Paul II understood it. He said the same thing as Benedict. And uh, this author that I mentioned, Aaron A. Hosher, that the beginning of renewal always contains the fathers, the desert fathers, because of the essential ascetical element of the faith. And that's one of the things that we need to reconnect to. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well, Father, where can people find uh, more about you? Where can they listen to your podcast, where they can uh, join in your um, Philokalia uh, ministries? Okay. Yeah. I have a Podbean site called philokalia.podbean.com. And uh, there are over 400 podcasts available <laughs> there, beginning with themes from the Philokalia uh, to help people understand some of the thematic elements as well as the use of the language of the fathers. Okay. And then we go through uh, St. John Climacus, Cassian, uh, the Ever Theophan, and uh, Isaac the Syrian. 
And so all those are available there. Plus, I do a little video series on YouTube called City of Desert, where I just take one of the sayings of the daily uh, daily of the uh, fathers. Right now, we're doing Mark the Ascetic. Just want something to chew on, if you will, throughout yeah. the course of the day. So a reflection on one saying of the father, unpacking it for about five minutes. There are about 150 of those episodes available on YouTube. And then the, all of the resources are pulled together on the Pittsburgh Oratory website under Philokalia Ministries. And so if you just go to the Pittsburgh Oratory website, you'll see the link for that. And all the resources are gathered, as well as some documents. And then I'm all over social media, too, with yeah. posts on various things. Yeah, praise God. Well, and ladies and gentlemen listening, we're going to put all this stuff in the show notes on our website, on our YouTube channel, and everything to direct you uh, to those things. Father, I just couldn't be more grateful for your time. It has been a true blessing. Um, uh, Yeah, I I look forward to the next time we can connect and have you on. This has been wonderful to speak with you both. Great questions and comments, too. Yeah, thank you. And hopefully that will be a big part of your show from now on. Always an ascetical element. Bring in the father. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. I love it. I, I think that's a great idea. So as we like to end every episode for our listeners... Be a man, be a saint. Mm-hmm.